Podcastle 207, Giant Episode, for May 8th, 2012. Hope Chest by Garth Nix. Rated R for Violence. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, and this week we're back with another Garth Nix story. Calm yourselves, my friends. This is not going to be one of Nix's Sir Hereward, or as they say in Australia and apparently several other places, Sir He Reward and Mr. Fitz. No, this week we've got a weird western for you. This one's packed with not only the good, the bad, and the ugly, but a healthy dose of supernatural oppression, a mysterious birthright, and a showdown reminiscent of Samuel L. Jackson. If he were a young woman, that is. So throw down your swords and strap on your six-shooters. Yeehaw! Hope chests are used by young women to collect items such as clothes, valuables, maybe heirlooms, or whatever else she might want to save until she gets married. Or, barring marriage, until she comes of age. Podcastle's very proud to present Hope Chest by Garth Nix, originally published in Firebirds, an anthology of original fantasy and science fiction. Garth Nix himself hails from Australia and is most popular around these parts for his Sir He Reward and Mr. Fitz swashbuckling sword and puppetry stories. Listen to them here for free or buy the ebook for $2.99 or do both. His latest novel is the YA space opera A Confusion of Princes and is out in bookstores next week. Our reader this week is the mighty, mighty Mer Lafferty. John W. Campbell, nominee and editor of our sister podcast, Escape Pod, which is currently in the midst of Hugo Month. Here's some pretty cool Hugo news in case you hadn't heard it, but both Podcastle and Escape Pod reprinted stories that uh, were eventually nominated for the Hugos this year, which is pretty darn cool. Uh, we printed The Paper Menagerie by Kin Liu, and Escape Pod reprinted Movement by Nancy Foldup. So, go escape artists. Murr also does the awesome I Should Be Writing podcast, the Angry Robot Books podcast. Oh, and also, she just got a two-book deal for her own novels over at Orbit Books. I hear she's also giving all her books away for free for the next couple of months, so head on over to the Murrverse to check that out. So remember, if you take care of Podcastle, Podcastle will take care of you. Enjoy the story. Hope Chest by Garth Nix One dusty, slow morning in the summer of 1922, a passenger was left crying on the platform when the milk train pulled out of Denelberg after its five-minute stop. No one noticed at first, what with the whistle from the train and the billowing steam and smoke and the laboring of the steel wheels upon the rails. The milk carter was busy with the cans, the station master with the mail. No one else was about, not when the full dawn was still half a cup of coffee away. When the train had rounded the corner, taking its noise with it, the crying could clearly be heard. Milk carter and station master both looked up from their work and saw the source of the noise. A baby, tightly swaddled in a pink blanket, was precariously balanced on a large steamer trunk on the very edge of the platform. With every cry and wriggle, the baby was moving closer to the side of the trunk. If she fell, she'd fall not only from the trunk, but from the platform, down to the rails four feet below. The carter jumped over his cans, knocking two over, his heels splashing in the spilt milk. The station master dropped his sack, letters and packets cascading out to meet the milk. They each got a hand under the baby at the very second it rolled off the trunk. Both men went over the edge of the platform, and they trod on each other's feet as they landed, hard and painful, but upright. The baby was perfectly balanced between them. That's how Alice May Susan Hopkins came to Denelberg, and that's how she got two unrelated uncles with the very same first name, her uncle Bill Carey, the station master, and her uncle Bill Hugener, the milk carter. The first thing the two Bills noticed when they caught the baby was the note pinned to the pink blanket. It was on fine ivory paper, the words in blue-black ink that caught the sun and glinted when you held it just so. It said, Alice May Susan, born on the summer solstice 1921, 
Look after her, and she'll look after you. It didn't take long for the news of Alice May Susan's arrival to get around the town, and it wasn't more than 15 minutes later that 50% of the town's grown women were all down at the station, the 38 of them clustering around that poor baby enough to suffocate her. Fortunately, it was only a few minutes more till Eulalie Falkirk took charge, as she always did, and established a roster for hugging and kissing and gawking and fussing and worrying and gossiping over the child. Over the next few months, that roster changed to include actually looking after little Alice May Susan. She was handed from one married woman to the next, changing her surname from month to month as she went from family to family. She was a dear little girl, everyone said, and Eulalie Falkirk was hard put to decide who should adopt the child. Her final decision came down to one simple thing. While all the women folk had been busy with the baby, most of the men folk had been taking their turn, trying to open up that steamer trunk. The trunk looked easy enough. It was about six feet long, three feet wide, and two feet high. It had two leather straps around it and an old brass lock, the kind with a keyhole big enough to put your whole finger in. Only no one did after Torrance Yib put his in and came back with the tip missing, cut off clean as you please right at the joint. The straps wouldn't come undone either, and whatever they were, it wasn't any leather anyone in Denelberg had ever seen. It wouldn't cut and wouldn't tear, and those straps drove everyone who tried them mad with frustration. There was some talk of devilment and foreign magic, till Bill Carey, who knew more about luggage than the rest of the town put together, pointed out the brass plate on the underside that read, Made in the USA, Imp, Pat, Penned, Burglar-Proof Trunk. Then everyone was proud and said it was scientific progress, and what a pity it was the name of the company had got scratched off, for they'd get some good business in Dentalburg if only they knew where to send their orders. The only man in the whole town who hadn't tried to open the trunk was Jake Hopkins, the druggist, so when Stella Hopkins said they'd like to take the baby, Alice May Susan, on, Eulalie Falkirk knew it wasn't because they wanted whatever was in the trunk. So Alice May Susan joined the Hopkins household and grew up with Jake and Stella's born daughters, Janice, Jessie, and Jane, who at the time were ten, eight, and four. The steamer trunk was put in the attic, and Alice May Susan, to all intents and purposes, became another Hopkins girl. No one out of the ordinary, just a typical Denelberg girl, the events of her life pretty much interchangeable with the sisters who had gone before her until the year she turned 16 in 1937. Of her three sisters, only Jane was at home that birthday, enjoying a vacation. Janice and Jessie had married up and left, both of them now living more than 20 miles away. Jane was different. She'd won a scholarship that had taken her off to college back east, where she'd got all sorts of ideas. One of them involved criticizing everything Alice May Susan did or said, and counting the days till she could get on the train out of town and back to what she called civilization. "'You'd better study harder so you can have a chance to get away from this place,' said Jane, as they sat on the porch eating birthday cake and watching the world go by. None of it had gone by yet, unless you counted the Prowl's cat. "'I like it here,' said Alice May. "'Why would I want to leave?' "'Because there's nothing here,' protested Jane. "'Nothing. No life, no color, no events. "'Nothing ever happens. "'Everyone just gets married, has children, "'and it starts all over again. "'There's no romance in anything or anyone.' "'Not everyone gets married,' replied Alice May, "'after a short pause to swallow a too large bite of cake. "'Gwenifer Corbin, you mean?' said Jane. "'She's a schoolmistress.' Everyone knows they're always spinsters. You don't want to be a schoolmistress. Maybe I do, answered Alice May. She spun her cake fork into a silver blur and snatched it handle first out of the air. Do you really? asked Jane, momentarily shocked. A schoolmistress? Alice May frowned and threw the cake fork into the wall. It stuck, quivering, next to the tiny holes in the wood that showed several years of practice in the gentle art of cake-fork throwing. I don't know, she said. I do feel... I do feel that I want to be something. I just don't know what that is. Study, said Jane firmly. Work hard. Go to college. 
Education is the only way for a woman to have her own life. Alice May nodded to avoid further discussion. It was her birthday, and she felt hot and bothered rather than happy. The cake was delicious, and they'd had a very pleasant lunch with her family and some friends from school. But her birthday somehow felt unfinished and incomplete. There was something that she had to do, but she didn't know what it was. Something more immediate than deciding her future life. It didn't take more than two hours in the rocking chair on the porch to work out what it was she needed to do and wait for the right moment to do it. The steamer trunk. It had been a long time since she'd even looked at it. Over the years, she'd tried it many times, alone and in company. There had been times when she'd gone up to the attic every day to test if, by some chance, it had come undone. There'd been times when she'd forgotten about it for months. But no matter what, she always found herself making an attempt to open it on her birthday. Even when she forgot about opening it, the trunk's brooding presence stayed with her. It was a reminder that she was not exactly as the other Hopkins girls. Sometimes that was pleasant, but more often not, particularly as she had got older. Alice May sighed and decided to give it yet another try. It was evening by then, and somewhat cooler. She picked up her lantern, trimmed the wick down a little, and went inside. "'Trunk?' asked her foster father, Jake, as she went through the kitchen. He was preserving lemons. The careful practice of his drugstore carried over to the culinary arts. No one else in Dentalburg preserved lemons, or would know what to do with them once they were preserved. "'Trunk?' asked Stella, who was sewing in the drawing room. "'Trunk?' asked Jane on the stairs, as Alice May passed her. "'Trunk?' "'Of course the trunk!' snapped Alice May. She pulled down the attic ladder angrily and climbed up. It was a very clean attic in a very clean house. There was only the trunk in it, up against the small window that was letting in the last of the hot summer sun. A red glow shone on the brass lock and the lustrous leather straps. Alice May was still angry. She set the lantern down, grabbed a strap, and pulled. When it came loose, she fell over backwards and hit her head on the floor. The sound it made echoed through the house. There was a noticeable pause, then three voices carried up through every part of the house. Are you all right? Yes, shouted Alice May, angrier still. She wrenched at the other strap, and it came loose too, though this time she was ready for it. At the same time, the brass lock went click. It wasn't the sort of click that was so soft you could think you might have imagined it. This was a slow, drawn-out click, as if mighty metal gears were slowly turning over. The lid of the trunk eased up half an inch. Alice May whispered, It's open. No one heard her, least of all herself. She reached forward and lifted the lid a little further. It moved easily, the hinges free, as if they'd just been oiled. It's open! screeched Alice May. The trunk is open! The sound of a mad scramble below assured her that her family had heard her this time. Before they could get there, Alice May pushed the lid completely back. Her brow furrowed as she looked at what lay within. All her life she had been waiting to open this trunk, both dreading and hoping that she would find some clue to the mystery of her birth and arrival in Dentalburg. Papers, letters, a family Bible, perhaps. Nothing of that kind was obvious. Instead, Clipped into the back wall of the trunk, there was a lever-action rifle, an old one, with a deeply polished stock of dark wood and an octagonal barrel of dark blue steel chased with silver flowers. Underneath it were two holstered revolvers, big weapons. Their barrels were also engraved in silver with the flower motif, which was repeated on the holsters, though not in silver, but black thread, somber on the leather. A belt with bullet loops was folded up and pinned between the holsters. More dark leather, more flowers, and black thread. On the left side of the trunk, there was a teak box with the word ammunition burnt into the lid in slim poker work. On the right side, there was a jewelry case of deep purple velvet plush. Underneath the ammunition box and the jewelry case, along the bottom of the trunk, there was a white dress laid out flat. Alice May stared at it. The words Annie Oakley and wedding dress flitted through her mind. Truly, it was a strange combination of cowgirl outfit and bridal gown, cut from the finest, whitest shot silk, with the arms and waistcoat, it had a waistcoat, sewn with lines of tiny pearls. 
It looked a little big for Alice May, particularly in the region of the bust. It was also indecently short, for either a wedding dress or cowgirl outfit. It probably wouldn't go much below her knees. A Winchester 73, said Jake behind her, pointing at the rifle. He didn't make any attempts to reach forward and touch them. And two Colt 44s, peacemakers, I think, like the one my grandfather had above the mantelpiece in the old house. Weird, said Jane, pushing her father so he moved to allow herself and Stella up. What's in the jewelry box? asked Stella. She spoke in a hushed tone as if she were in the temple. Alice May looked around and saw that Jake, Stella, and Jane were all clustered around the top of the ladder as if they didn't want to come any closer. Alice May reached into the trunk and picked up the jewelry case. As she touched the velvet, she felt a strange electrical thrill pass through her. It wasn't unpleasant, and she felt it again as she opened the case. A frisson of excitement ran through her whole body from top to toe. The case held a metal star, a sheriff's badge, or something in the shape of one anyway, though there was nothing engraved upon it. The star was shinier than any lawman's badge Alice May had ever seen, a bright silver that picked up the red sunlight and intensified and purified it, till it seemed that she held an acetylene light in her hand, a blinding light that forced her to look away and flip it over. The light faded, leaving a black spot dancing in front of her eyes. Alice May saw there was a pin on the back of the star, but again there was nothing engraved where she had hoped to see a name. Alice May put the star back in the case and closed it, letting out the breath she didn't know she'd held. A loud exhalation from behind her told her that the rest of her family had been holding their breaths as well. Next, she slid the rifle from the straps that held it in place. It felt strangely right in her hands, and without conscious thought she worked the action, checked the chamber was empty, and dry-fired it. A second later she realized she didn't know what she'd done, and at the same time that she could do it again and more. She could load and fire the weapon, and strip and clean it too. It was all in her head, even though she'd only ever fired one firearm in her life before, and that was only her Uncle Bill's single-shot squirrel gun. She put the rifle back and took down the twin revolvers. They were heavy, but again she instinctively knew their weight and heft, loaded or unloaded. She put the revolvers, still holstered, across her lap. The flower pattern on the barrel seemed to move and flow as she stared at them, and the herringbone cut on the grip swung from one angle to another. The grips were some sort of bone, Alice May realized, stained dark, or perhaps they were ebony and had never been stained. She drew one of the revolvers, and once again her hands moved without conscious thought. She swung the cylinder out, spun it, checked it was empty, slapped it back again, cocked and released the hammer under control, and had it back in the holster almost before her foster family could blink. Alice May put the revolvers back. She didn't even look at the box with the poker work ammunition on it. She closed the trunk firmly. The lock clicked again, and she rapidly did up the straps. Then she turned to her family. Best if we don't mention this around, she started to say. Then she saw the way they were looking at her, a look that was part confusion, part awe, and part fear. That star, said Jake. So bright, said Stella. Your hands, a blur, said Jane. I don't want it, burst out Alice May. I'm not, it's not me. I'm Alice May Susan Hopkins. She pushed past Jane and almost fell down the ladder in her haste to get away. The others followed more slowly. Alice May had already run to her room, and they all could hear her sobbing. Jake went back to the kitchen and his preserved lemons. Stella went back to her sewing. Jane went to Alice May's door, but turned aside at the last second and went downstairs to write a letter to a friend about how nothing ever, ever happened in Denelberg. When Alice May came down to breakfast the next morning, after a night of no sleep, the others were bright and cheerful. When Alice May tentatively tried to talk about what had happened, it became clear that the others had either no memory of what they had seen or were actively denying it. Alice May did not forget. She saw the silver star shining in her dreams and often woke with the feel of the rifle's stock against her cheek or the harsh weight of the holstered revolvers on her thighs. With the dreams came a deep sense of dread, 
Alice May knew that the weapons and the star were some sort of birthright, and with them came the knowledge that some day they were to be used. She feared that day, and could not imagine who or what she was supposed to shoot. Sometimes, the notion that she might have to kill a fellow human being scared her more than anything. At other times, she was more terrified by a strange notion that whatever she would ultimately face would not be human. A year passed, and summer came again, hotter and drier than ever before. The spring planting died in the fields, and with the small seedlings went the hopes of both the farmers of Denelberg and the townsfolk who depended on the farmers making money. At the same time, a large number of apparently solid banks went under. It came as a surprise, particularly since they'd weathered the credit famine of 30 and the bursting of the tantalum bubble two years previously. The bank crash was accompanied by a crisis of confidence in the currency, as the country shifted from gold and silver to aluminum and copper-nickel coins that had no intrinsic value. One of the banks that failed was the Third National Faith, the bank which held most of the meager savings of Denelberg's residents. Alice May found out about it when she came home from school to discover Stella weeping and Jake white-faced in the kitchen, mechanically chopping what might have once been a pumpkin. For a while it looked like they'd lose the drugstore, but Janice's husband had kept a highly illegal store of double eagles, the ones with the dowager empress's head on them. Selling them to a licensed coin collector brought in just enough to pay the Hopkins debts and keep the store a going concern. Jane had to leave college, though. Her scholarship was adversely affected by inflation, and Jake and Stella couldn't afford to give her anything. Everyone expected her to come home, but she didn't. Instead, she wrote to say that she had a job, a good job, with a great future. It took a few more months and a few letters before it turned out that Jane's job was with a political organization called the Servants of the State. She sent a tonotype of herself in the black uniform with the firebrand badges and armband. Jake and Stella didn't put it up on the mantelpiece with the shots from her sister's lives. The arrival of Jane's tonotype coincided with Alice May and everyone else spending a lot more time thinking about the servants. They'd seemed a harmless enough group for many years, just another right-wing, bigoted, reactionary, pseudo-military political organization with a few seats in Congress and a couple of very minor advisory positions at the palace. But by the time Jane joined the party, things had changed. The servants had found a new leader somewhere, a man they called the Master. He looked ordinary enough in the newspapers, a short man with a peculiar beard, a long forelock and staring eyes. He had some resemblance to the Canetto comedian Harry Hopalong, who favored the same sort of over-trimmed goatee, but the master wasn't funny. The master clearly had some charisma that could not be captured by the tonotype process or reproduced in print. He toured the country constantly, and wherever he appeared, he swayed local politicians, the important business people, and most of the ordinary population. Mayors left their political parties and joined the servants. Oil and tantalum barons gave large donations. Professors wrote essays supporting the economic theories of the master. Crowds thronged to cheer and worship at the master's progress. Everywhere the servants grew in popularity, there were murders and arson. Opponents of the servants died. Minorities of every kind were persecuted, particularly the first people and followers of the major heresies. Even Orthodox temples, whose haruspices did not agree that fortune favored the servants, were burned to the ground. Neither harassment, beatings, murder, arson, or rape were properly investigated when they were done by or in the name of the servants. Or if they were, matters never successfully came to trial in either state or imperial courts. Local police left the servants to their own devices. The emperor, now a very old man roosting in the palace at Washington, did nothing. People wistfully spoke of his glory days, leading hilltop charges and shooting bears, but that was long ago, and he was senile, or close to it, and the crown prince was almost terminally lazy, a genial buffoon who could not be stirred into any kind of action. Off in Denelberg, Alice May was largely insulated from what was going on elsewhere, but even in that small, sleepy town, she saw the rise of the servants. The two shops belonged to what the servants called others. Pretty much anyone who wasn't white and a regular worshipper 
had red firebrands painted across their windows and lost most of their customers. In other towns, their owners would have been beaten or tarred and feathered, but it hadn't yet come to that in Dentalburg. People Alice May had known all her life talked about the international other conspiracy and how they were to blame for the bank failures, the crop failures, and all other failures, particularly their own failures in the everyday business of life. The fact that something really serious was happening came home to Alice May the day that her Uncle Bill Carey walked past dressed not in his station master's green and blue, but the servant's black and red. Alice May went out into the street to ask him what on earth he thought he was doing, but when she stopped in front of him, she saw a strange vacancy in his eyes. It was not the Bill Carey she had known all her life. Instinctively, she knew that something had happened to him, that the adopted uncle she knew and loved had been changed, his natural humanity driven deep inside him and overlaid by something horrible and poisonous. "'Praise the master,' snapped Bill as Alice May looked at him. His hand crawled up to his shoulder and then snapped across his chest in the servant's knife-chop salute. He didn't say anything else. His strange eyes stared into the distance until Alice May stepped aside. He strode off as she rushed inside to be sick. Later, she learned that he had been to Jarawak City, the state capital, the day before. He had seen the master speak, out of curiosity, as had a number of other people from Denelberg. All of them had come back as committed servants. Alice May tried to talk to Jake and Stella about Bill, but they wouldn't listen. They were afraid to discuss the servants, and they would not accept that anything had been done to Bill. As far as they were concerned, he'd simply decided to ride with the tide. When times are tough, people will believe anything that puts the blame somewhere, said Jake. Bill Carey's a good man, but his paycheck hasn't kept up with inflation. I guess he's only just been holding on for some time, and that master gave him hope, somehow. Hope laced with hatred, snapped Alice May. She still felt sick to the very bottom of her stomach at seeing Bill in his servant's uniform. It was even worse than the tonotype of Jane. More real, more immediate. It was wrong, wrong, wrong. A knock at the door stopped the conversation. Jake and Stella exchanged frightened looks. Alice May frowned, angry that her foster parents could be made afraid by such a simple thing as a knock at the door. They would have never flinched before. She went to open it like a whirlwind, rushing down the hall so fast she knocked the portrait of Stella's grandsire to the floor. Glass shattered and the frame broken, too. There was no one outside, but a notice had been pushed half under the door. Alice May picked it up, saw the black and red and the flaming torch, and stormed back inside, slamming the door behind her. The master's coming here, this afternoon, she exclaimed, waving the paper in front of her, on a special train. He's going to speak from it. She put her finger against the bottom line. It says, everyone must attend, she said grimly, as if we don't have a choice who we listen to. We'd better go, muttered Stella. Jake nodded. What? screamed Alice May. He's only a politician. Stay at home. Jake shook his head. No, no. I've heard about what happens if you don't go. There's the store to think about. And my grandsire was a cheveril, an accommodator, Stella said quietly. She looked down at the splintered glass and the smashed painting. We mustn't give them a reason to look into the family. We must be there. I'm not going, announced Alice May. You are while you live in this house, snapped Jake, in a rare display of temper. I will not have all our lives and livelihood risked for some silly girl's fancies. I am not going, repeated Alice May. She felt strangely calm, obviously much calmer than Jake, whose face was flushed with sudden heat, or Stella, who had gone deathly pale. Then you better get out altogether, said Jake fiercely. Go and find your real parents. Stella cried out as he spoke and clutched at his arm, but she didn't speak. Alice May looked at the only parent she had ever known. She felt as if she were in a Canetto play, with all of them trapped by the script. There was an inevitability in Jake's words, but he seemed as surprised to say them as she was to hear them. She saw a terror deep in his eyes, and shame. He was already afraid at what he was becoming, afraid of the place his fears were driving him toward. "'I'll go and pack,' she said, her voice dull to her own ears. It was not the real Jake who had spoken, she knew. He was a timid man. He did not know how to be brave, 
and anger was his only escape from acknowledging his cowardice. Alice May didn't pack. She stopped by her room to pick up a pair of riding boots and then went up to the attic. She opened the trunk, breathing a sigh of relief as the straps and lock gave no resistance. She took out the box marked ammunition and set it on the floor and placed the holstered revolvers and the belt next to the box. Then she stripped down to her underclothes and put on the white dress. It fitted her perfectly, as she knew it would. She had grown in the years since her first sight of the dress, enough that two undone shirt buttons could derail the trains of thought and conversation of most of the boys she knew, and some of the men. This dress was not low-cut, but it hugged her breasts and waist before flaring out, and it was daringly short at an inch below her knees. The waistcoat that went over it was also tailored to show off her figure. Strangely, it appeared to be lined with woven strands of hair, blonde hair that was almost identical shade to her own. The dress, even with the waistcoat, was cold to the touch, as if it had come out of an ice chest. The temperature outside had forced the mercury out the top of the old thermometer by the kitchen door, and it was stifling in the attic. Alice May wasn't even warm. She strapped on the revolvers next. The gun belt rested on her hips, with the holsters lower against her thighs. She found that the dress was double-lined there, to guard against wear, and there were small ties to fix the snout of each holster to her dress. The ammunition box opened easily. It held a dozen smaller boxes of blue tin, Alice May was somehow not surprised by the descriptions, which were handwritten on pasted labels. Six of the boxes were labeled Colt 45 Four-Way Silver Cross, and six Winchester 4440 Silver Cutter. She opened a tin of the 45 Four-Way Silver Cross. The squat brass cartridges were topped with lead bullets, but each had four fat lines of silver crossed across the top. Alice May knew it was real silver. The 4440 cartridges looked similar, but the bullets were either solid silver or silver over a core of lead. Alice May quickly loaded both revolvers and then the rifle and filled the loops on her belt with a mixture of both cartridges. Instinctively, she knew which ammunition to use in each weapon, and she put the 45 silver cross cartridges only on the left of the eagle buckle and the 4440 only on the right. Even with the rifle temporarily laid on the floor, the revolvers and the laden bullet belt came to quite a heavy load, heavy on her hips and thighs. There was still one thing left in the trunk. Alice May picked up the jewelry case and opened it. The star was dull till she touched it, but it began to shine as she pinned it on. It was heavy, too, heavier than it should have been, and her knees buckled a little as the little pin snapped in. Alice May stood absolutely still for a moment, breathing slowly, taking the weight that was as much imagined as real. The light of her star slowly faded with each breath, till it was no more than a bright piece of metal reflecting the sun. Everything felt lighter then, revolvers, belt, star, and her own spirits. She closed the trunk, sat on it, and pulled on her boots. Then she picked up the rifle and climbed down the ladder. No one was downstairs. The broken glass and picture frame were still on the floor, in total contradiction of Stella's nature and habit. The painting itself was gone. Alice May let herself out the back way and quickly crossed the street to her Uncle Bill's house. The other Uncle Bill, Bill Hugener, the milk carter. She wanted to talk to him before she did whatever she was going to do. It was unusually quiet on the street. A hot breeze blew, throwing up dust devils that whirled on the fringes of the graveled road. No one was outside. There were no children playing. No one was out walking, driving, or riding. There was only the hot wind and Alice May's boots crunching gravel as she walked the hundred yards diagonally down the street to the Hugener house. She stopped at the picket fence. There was a red firebrand splashed across the partly open door, the paint still wet and dripping. Alice May's hands worked the lever of her rifle without conscious thought as she pushed the door open with the toe of her boot. The coolness of her dress was spreading across her skin, only it was colder now, a definite chill. Bill, as his surname gave away, was a descendant of the heretical oncers, even if he wasn't practicing himself. The servants reserved a special hatred for the monotheistic oncers. Everything in the hall had been broken, all of Bill's paintings of the town and its people, a lifetime of work, were smashed upon the floor. 
The wire umbrella stand had been wrenched apart, and the sticks and umbrellas it contained used as clubs to pummel the plasterboard. It was full of gaping holes, the wallpaper flapping around them like torn skin. There was blood on the floor, lots of blood, a great dark ocean of it close by the door, and then smaller pools leading back into the house. A bloody handprint by the kitchen door showed where someone, no, not someone, Alice May thought, but Bill, her Uncle Bill, had leaned for support. She stepped through the wreckage, colder still, colder than she had ever been. Her eyes moved slowly from side to side, the rifle barrel with its silver flowers following her gaze. Her finger was flat and straight against the trigger guard, an instant away from the trigger, a shot, a death. Uncle Bill was in the kitchen. He was sitting with his back against the stove, his skin pale, almost translucent, against the yellow enamel of the oven door. His eyes were open and impossibly clear, the white whiter than any milk he had ever carted, but his once bright blue pupils were dulling into black, black as the undersized bow tie which hung on his chest, the elastic broken. His mouth was open, a gaping, formless hole. It took Alice May a moment to realize that his tongue had been cut out. From his waist down, Bill's usually immaculate whites were black, sodden, totally saturated with blood. It still dripped from him slowly, into the patch under his legs. Someone had used that same blood to paint a clumsy firebrand symbol on the floor, and two words. But the blood had spread and joined in the letters, so it was impossible to read whatever Bill's murderers had intended. The firebrand was enough, in any case, for the death to be claimed by the servants. Alice May stared at her dead uncle, thinking terrible thoughts. There were no strangers in town. She would know the murderers. She could see it so easily. The men dressed up in their black and red, drinking whiskey to make themselves brave. They would have passed the house a dozen times before they finally knocked on Bill's door. Perhaps they'd spoken normally for a minute to him before they pushed him back inside. Then they'd cut and cut and cut at him as he'd reeled back down his own hallway, unable to believe what was happening and unable to resist. Bill Hugener had died at the hands of neighbors without having any idea of what was going on. Alice May knew what was going on. She knew it deep inside, at a level that required no thought. The master was a messenger of evil, a corrupter of souls. The servants were not servants of the state, but slaves to some awful and insidious poison that changed their very nature and made them capable of committing such dreadful crimes as the murder of her Uncle Bill. She stepped towards him, toward the pool of blood. An echo answered her, another footfall, in the yard beyond the kitchen door. Alice May stopped where she was, silent, waiting. The footsteps continued, then the screen door swung open. A man came in, not really looking where he was going. He wore a servant's black coat over his bib and brace overalls. There was blood splashed above his knees. There was blood on his hands. His name was Everett Kale, an assistant butcher. He had once walked out with Jane Hopkins and had given a much younger Alice May a single marigold from the bunch he'd brought for Jane. Alice May's star flashed bright, and Everett looked up. He saw Alice May, the star, the leveled rifle. His hands flashed to the bone-handled skinning knife that rattled the broad butcher's scabbard at his side. The shot was very loud in the confined space, but Alice May didn't flinch. She worked the lever, the action so fast the sound seemed to fall behind it, and then she put another round into the man who had fallen back through the door. He was already dead, but she wanted to be sure. Noise greeted her as she stepped outside, shouts and surprised cries. There were three men in the yard, looking at the dead butcher on the ground. They had got into Bill's homebrew, and they were all holding bottles of thick, dark beer. They dropped the bottles as Alice May came out shooting. They were armed with slim, new automatic pistols that fit snugly into clipped holsters at the nipped-in waists of their black tunics. None of them managed to get a pistol out. They were all dead on the ground within seconds, their blood mixing with black, foaming beer, their death throes acted out upon a bed of broken glass. Alice May looked at them from a weird and forbidding place inside her own head. She knew them, but felt no remorse. Butcher, baker, ne'er-do-well, and oar-washer, all men of the town. Her hands had done the killing. 
her hands and the rifle. Even now, those same hands were reloading, taking bullets from her belt and slipping them with a satisfying click into the tubular magazine. Alice May realized she had no conscious control over her hands at all. Somewhere between opening the front door of Bill's house and entering the kitchen, she had become an observer within her own body. But she didn't feel terrified by this. It felt right, and she realized she was still in charge of her actions. She wasn't a zombie or anything. She would decide where to go next, but her body and the weapons would help her do whatever had to be done when she got there. She walked around the still-twitching bodies and out the back gate, onto another empty street with the unforgiving hot wind and the dust and the complete absence of people. There should have been a crowd come to see what the shooting was about. The town's two lawmen should be riding up on their matching greys, but there was only Alice May. She turned down the street toward the railway station. Her boot heels crunched on the gravel. She felt like she had never really heard that particular sound before, not so clear, so loud. The wind changed direction and blew against her, stronger and hotter than ever. Dust blew up, heavy dust that carried chunks of grit. But none hit Alice May, none got in her eyes. Her white dress repelled it, the wind seeming to divide as it hit her, great currents of dust and grit flying around her on either side. A door opened to her left, and she was facing it, her finger on the trigger. A man half-stepped out, old Mr. Lacker in his best suit, a servant's of the state flag held in his trembling hand, his left hand. "'Stay home,' ordered Alice May. Her voice was louder than she expected. It boomed in her ears, easily cutting through the wind. Lacker took another step and raised his flag. "'Stay home!' Another step, another wave of the flag. Then he reached inside his jacket and pulled out a tiny pocket pistol, a single-shot Derringer, all ancient, tarnished brass." Alice May pulled the trigger and walked on, as old man Lacker's best suit suddenly fountained blood from the lapel, a vivid buttonhole of arterial scarlet. She reloaded as she walked. Inside she was screaming, but nothing came out. She hadn't wanted to kill Mr. Lacker. He was old, harmless, no danger. He couldn't have hit her even if she was standing next to him. But her hands and the rifle had disagreed. Alice May knew where she had to go, the railway station where the master was to arrive in under an hour. She had to go there and kill him. It didn't seem sensible to walk down the main street, so Alice May cut through the field behind the schoolhouse. From the top of the cutting beyond the field, she looked both ways, toward the station and out along the line. The special train was already at the platform. One engine, a coal truck, and a single private car, all painted in black and red. The engine had a shield placed on the front of the boiler above the cow catcher a shield with the blazing torch of the servants. The train must have backed up all the way from Jarawak City, Alice thought, just so the balcony at the rear of the private car faced the turning circle at the end of Main Street. There were a lot of people gathered in that turning circle, all the people who Alice May had expected to see in the streets. They'd come down early to make sure they weren't marked out as tardies or reluctant supporters. The whole population of the town had to be there, many of them in servants' uniform, and all of them waving red and black flags. Alice May slid down the cutting and walked between the rails. This was the way she'd come as a baby all those years ago, but somehow she didn't think she'd come from Jarawak City. All the attention was at the rear of the train, though it was clear the master hadn't yet appeared. It was too noisy for that, with crowd cheering and town band playing something unrecognizable. The newspapers all made a big thing about the total silence that fell in any audience as the master spoke. Alice May crossed the line and crept down the far side of the engine. Just as she came to the coal truck, an engineer stepped down. He wore denim overalls, topped with a black servant's cap, complete with the badge of the flaming brand. Alice May's hands moved. The butt of the rifle snapped out, and the engineer went down to the rails. He crawled around there for a moment, trying to get up, as Alice May calmly waited for the crowds to cheer again and the band to crescendo with drums and brass. As they did, she fired a single shot into the engineer's head and stepped over him. I'm a murderer, she thought, many times over. I wish they'd stay out of my way. Alice May stepped up to the private car's forward balcony. She tried to look inside, but the window was smoked glass. Alice May tried the door. It wasn't locked. She opened it left-handed, the rifle ready. 
She had expected a small sitting room of some kind, perhaps opulently furnished. What she saw was an impossibly long corridor, stretching off into the distance, the end out of sight. The crowd suddenly went silent at the other end of the train. Alice May stepped into the corridor and shut the door behind her. It was dark with the door closed, but her star shone more brightly, lighting the way. Apart from its length, and the fact that the far end was shrouded in mist or smoke, the corridor seemed pretty much like any other train corridor Alice May had ever seen. Polished wood and metal fittings, and every few steps a compartment door. The only strange thing was that the compartment doors all had smoked glass windows, and you couldn't see in. Alice May was tempted to open a door, but she held out against the temptation. Her business was with the master, and he was speaking down the far end of the train. Who knew what she would get herself into by opening a door? She continued to walk as quietly as she could down the corridor. Every few steps, she would hear a sound and would freeze for a moment, her finger on the trigger. But the sounds were not of people or weapons or danger. They came from behind the compartment doors and were of the sea or wind or falling rain. Still, the corridor continued, and Alice May seemed no closer to the end. She started to walk faster and then began to run. She had to get there before the master finished talking, before his poison took her foster parents and everyone she knew. Faster and faster, boot heels drumming, breath rasping, but still cold, cold as ice. She felt like she was pushing against a barrier, that at any moment it would break, and she would be free of the endless corridor. It did break. Alice May burst out into a smoking room, one full of servants, a long room packed with red and black uniforms. Alice May's hands and eyes started shooting before she even knew where she was. The rifle was empty in what seemed like only seconds, but each bullet had struck home. Servants slumped in their chairs, writhed on the ground, dived for cover, clutched at weapons. Alice May flung the rifle aside and drew a revolver, a movement so fast that to the shocked servants the rifle appeared to transform in her hands. Six more servants died as their nemesis fanned the hammer with her left hand, the shots sounding together in one terrible instant. Alice May holstered one revolver and drew the other, right hand and left hand in perfect opposite motion. But there was no one left to shoot. Gunsmoke mixed with cigar and pipe smoke, swirling up into the ceiling fans. Servants coughed out their last bloody breaths, and the last screams died away. So this is what they mean by a charnel house, thought Alice May, as she surveyed the room, calmly watching from somewhere deep inside herself, as some other part of her watched the final shudders and convulsions of dying men and women, amidst the blood and brains and urine that spread and soaked into the once blue carpet. Her hands, but not her hands, because surely they would be shaking, reloaded her revolvers as she watched. Then they picked up the rifle and reloaded that. The door opened at the far end of the smoking room. Alice May caught a brief glimpse of the master's back, caught a few of his shouted words, all of them tinged with the hint of a scream. Her rifle came up as a young woman in black and red entered the room. It was Jane. Alice May knew it was Jane, and still her finger tightened around the trigger. Hello, Alice May, said Jane. She didn't look at the newly dead around her, or bother to step back from the spreading pool of blood. The master said you would come. I'm to stop you, he said, because you won't shoot your own sister. She smiled and picked up a pistol from the table. Its previous owner had slid underneath, leaving a wet trail of blood and skin and guts against the back of his chair. Alice May's finger pulled the trigger, and she shot Jane. Only a last desperate exertion of will twitched her aim away from her sister's chest to her right arm. The master is always right, said Jane. Her right arm hung at her side, her black sleeve torn apart, chips of white bone strewn along it. No, said Alice May, as Jane stepped across the room and picked up another pistol with her left hand. The master's wrong, Jane. I have shot you. I will shoot you again. I, I can't help it. Don't. The master is always right, repeated Jane with serene confidence. She started to raise the pistol. This time, Alice May wasn't strong enough to resist the inexorable pull of the rifle. It swung steadily to point at Jane's chest, and it could not be turned aside. The shot sounded louder than any of the others, and its effect was more terrible. Jane was knocked off her feet. She was dead before she even joined the piled-up bodies on the floor. 
Alice May stepped over the corpses and knelt by Jane. Tears slid from her dress like rain from glass. The white cloth could not be stained. It turned the blood and broken flesh aside, just as it had the dust. But her hands were different, thought Alice May. Her hands would never be clean. Nothing ever happens in Dentalburg, whispered Alice May. She stood up and opened the door to the rear balcony, to the gathered town and the master. He was shouting as she came out, his arms high above his head, coming down to pound the railing so hard that it shivered under his fists. Alice May didn't listen to what she said. She pointed her rifle at the back of his head and pulled the trigger. A dry, pathetic click was the only result. Alice May worked the lever. A round ejected, brass tinkling and rolling off the balcony to the rails below. She pulled the trigger again, still with no result. The master stopped speaking and turned to face her. Alice May's star burst into light. She had to shield her eyes with the rifle so she could see. The master didn't look like much, up close. He was shorter than Alice May, and his goatee was ridiculous. He was just a funny little man, till you looked into his eyes. Alice May wished she hadn't. His eyes were like the endless corridor, stretching back to some nameless place, a void where nothing human could possibly exist. So, you killed your sister, said the master. His voice was almost a purr, the screaming and shouting gone. There was no doubt that everyone outside the train could still hear him. He had a voice that carried when he wanted it to, without effort. You killed Jane Elizabeth Suki Hopkins, just like you killed Everett Kale, Jim Bushby, Roscoe O'Fane, Hubert Jenks, and Old Man Lacker. Not to mention my people inside. You'd kill the whole town to get to me, wouldn't you? Alice May didn't answer, though she heard the crowd shuffle and gasp. She dropped the rifle and drew a revolver, or tried to. It stayed stuck fast in its holster. She tried the left-hand gun, but it was stuck too. Not that easy, is it? whispered the master, leaning across to speak to her alone. His breath smelled like the room she had left behind, of blood and shit and terror. There are rules, you know, between your kind and mine. You can't draw until I do, and as fast as you are, you can't be as fast as me. It'll all be for nothing. All the deaths. All the blood on your hands. Alice May stepped back to give him room. She daren't look at the crowd, or at the master's eyes again. She looked at his hands instead. You can give in, you know, whispered the master. Take your sister's place in my service. Even in my bed. She enjoyed that, you know. You would, too. The master licked his lips. Alice May didn't look at his long, pointed, leathery tongue. She watched his hands. He edged back a little, still whispering. No? This is your last chance, Alice May. Join me, and everything will turn out for the best. No one will blame you for killing Jane or the others. Why, I'll give you a... His hands flickered. Alice May drew. Both of them fired at the same time. Alice May didn't even know where his gun had come from. She felt something strike her chest, a savage blow, and she was rammed back into the balcony rail. But she kept her revolver trained dead center on the master, and her left hand fanned the hammer as she pulled the trigger one, two, three, four, five times. Then the revolver was empty. Alice May let it fall and fell herself, clutching her chest. She couldn't breathe. Her heart hammered with the knowledge that she'd been shot, that these were her last few seconds of life. Something fell into her hand. It was hot, scorching hot. She gazed at it stupidly as it burned into her palm. Eventually, she saw it was a bullet, a misshapen projectile that was not lead, but some sort of white and pallid stone. Alice May dropped it, though not quickly enough to avoid a burn deep enough to scar. She tried to breathe again, and could, though there was a sharp, stabbing pain in her lungs. She looked at her chest, expecting to see blood, but her waistcoat was as clean as ever, save for a small round hole on the right-hand side, exactly parallel with the dimming silver star on the left. Gingerly, Alice May reached in, but her hands only felt the woven hair. There was no hole in her undershirt, and no blood. Alice May sat up. The master was lying on his back on the far side of the balcony. 
He looked just like a small, dead man now. The dread that Alice May had felt for him was gone. She crawled over, but before she could touch him, his flesh began to quiver and move. It crawled and shivered, his face changing color from a reddish pink to a dull silver. Then the master's flesh began to liquefy, to become quicksilver in fact and well as color. The liquid splashed out of his clothes and dribbled across the floor into a six-spoked bronze drain hole in the corner. Soon there was nothing left of him but a small automatic pistol, a pile of clothing, and a pair of empty boots. Alice May looked out on the crowd. It was already breaking up. People were taking off their servants' uniforms, even down to their underwear. Others were simply walking away. All had their heads downcast, and no one was talking. Alice May stood up, her hands pressed against her ribs to ease the pain. She looked out in the crowd for her foster parents, for her surviving Uncle Bill. She saw them, but like everybody else, they would not look towards her. Their backs were turned, and they had their eyes firmly set towards the town. Jake and Stella held each other tightly and walked down the main street. They did not look back. Uncle Bill sidled toward the platform. For a moment, Alice May thought he was going to look at her, but he didn't. Alice May watched them walk away and felt them take whoever she had been with them. The fourth Hopkins girl, like the third, was dead to Dentalburg. Listlessly, she picked up her rifle and revolver and reloaded them. Her bullet belt was almost empty now. She was surprised when the engine whistled, but only for a moment. She had entered this life on a train. It seemed only fitting to leave it the same way. The train gave a stuttering lurch. Smoke billowed overhead, and the wheels screeched for grip. Alice May opened the balcony door and went inside. The smoking room had disappeared, taking Jane and all the other bodies with it. There was the endless corridor again, and at her feet, the steamer trunk. Alice May picked up one end of the trunk, opened the first compartment door she came to, and dragged it in. From the platform, Uncle Bill the porter watched the train slowly pull away. Before it got to the cutting, it veered off to a branch line that wasn't there, and disappeared into the mouth of a tunnel that faded away as the private car passed into its darkness. Bill wiped a tear from his eye. For a friend who had borne the same name, for a town that had lost its innocence, and for his almost daughter, who had paid the price for saving them all. And welcome back. Or should I say, all aboard? Demon Nazis. I hate those guys. Alright, let's jump straight to feedback this week for, hey, another Garth Nix story. What are the odds? A suitable present for a sorceress puppet. Featuring swords and puppetry, and the lightest of the Sir here rewarded Mr. Fitz stories, and I mean light as a compliment. The way I would say Jose Chung's From Outer Space was a light X-Files episode. But not everyone agreed. On the other side of the fence, Electric Paladin said, I can't say that I didn't like it, it just didn't really strike me the way the previous stories have. It was a fairly fun fantasy romp, but not a tale of drama and mystery gradually explicating a larger setting, with characters coyly displaying hidden depths. This one was just a dude in a tower with a broken foot macking on a cute nun. There's nothing wrong with that, but I've read better. And it starred the same characters, even. Umbridge of Snow disagreed, saying, This was definitely the funniest of the series for me, and given the shorter length, I probably liked it just as much as the first one. Benjamin J.B. postulated, Mignola is to Lovecraft what Garth Nix is to Robert E. Howard. And Devoted135 said, It's pretty amazing to me how different each of these stories is, even though they feature the same two characters with the same overall mission. I do hope that Mr. Nix keeps writing them and makes a novel from the stories. We love to hear what you think of the stories we run here, so swing on by forum.escapeartist.net and let us know what you thought of this bad boy. And if you like what we're doing, drop by podcastle.org and consider making a donation. Every single cent goes to paying our authors for the stories we read to all of you here. If you can't afford to donate, that's okay. Maybe write a review on iTunes, blog, tweet, or just tell a friend about us. Thanks so much. Well, that's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. 
On behalf of all of us here at Podcastle, we'd like to thank you for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week when Tim Pratt shares some charming little fables and morals with us. For right now, well, we've had it. There's too many motherfucking demon Nazis on this motherfucking train. We'll take care of that for you. And see you in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. J.K. Rowling wrote, Have you any idea of how much tyrants fear the people they oppress? All of them realize that one day, amongst their many victims, there is sure to be one who rises against them and strikes back.